This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, Monday. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB. I'm Guy Johnson. Alongside today, Damien Sassar, who is going to be guest hosting uh, with us throughout the rest of the hour. Damien, great to have you along for the ride. Look, i got a bunch of things going on that I'm really struggling to explain here. Oil prices down really sharply. What do you think? What is catching your eye today? Are those oil prices down on the back of what is happening in Shanghai? Or is there something more fundamental going on? Yeah, Guy, I mean, I think the Shanghai news has certainly got everyone's attention here. A lockdown, when you lock down a city of 25 million people, you know, it's 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 going to have some impacts and rolling impacts at that. And I think really it's causing a lot of people to to really question the whole, the whole zero COVID policy of China. You know, I know we'll have Sam Vizelli on later, but, you know, he, He's been an advocate. You know, China's focus on cases is just not working, and they're going to need to make a change. And I think markets are reflecting that here today. What do you think about this debate that that we're having about whether or not the yield curve inversion is significant? Set it up for us. Where, do, where does Damien Sassau sit on this? Are we heading for a recession? Is that what the market is signaling? Because I'm looking at stocks rolling over a little bit today, but I'm not seeing a stock market that looks particularly freaked out. All right, Guy. Well, look, I mean, as the door closes on the first quarter, let's just take stock of where we are. European equities have rallied 12% since bottoming in the beginning of the month, right? The S&P is only 7% off its all-time highs. The VIX is below 25. Crude is still at 110. And oh, hey, by the way, U.S. two-year yields are up 160 basis points year-to-date. Yes, I believe it's going to be very, very challenging for uh, the Fed or, 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 you know, to, to, to stop the U.S. economy from plunging into recession. And I think if you look at forwards, what the rates market is pricing in, uh, OAS curves are all inverted in the U.S. here, right? So, yeah, I think uh, the Fed is, is well aware of that. It's going to be a challenge. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about this in just a moment. Damien's going to be sticking with us. Let me just update you on what we're seeing with markets right now. The S&P uh, down by four-tenths of 1%, turning over the last 20, 30 minutes into negative territory. The Nasdaq's down by two-tenths of 1%. Here in Europe, actually, the FTSE was something of an anomaly today, finishing lower. Most of the continental markets were higher. But in terms of what was moving the FTSE 100 today, Rolls-Royce coming off really quite significantly after being boosted Friday on M&A takeover. But it's Shell down significantly today, down by 2.32%. BP's off 2.76%. But Barclays, actually, the real story of the day for me, down by over 4% at the European close, but actually subsequent to that, ADRs have dipped even further stateside. Uh, It appears that there is a major shareholder looking to exit from a position, and that's dragging the ADR significantly lower. That will be priced into the FTSE first thing tomorrow morning. That's the market story. Let's get the rest of the headlines. Over to you, Charlie Powell. Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Group of seven energy ministers have unanimously rejected Russian President Vladimir Putin's demand that natural gas contracts be paid in rubles. German's economy minister said Putin's demand represents, quote, a one-sided and clear breach of contracts. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps is demanding that P&O ferries rehire the 800 workers that fired this month, vowing to void savings from the move with legislation to stop it replacing them with lower-paid staff. Shapps said in a letter to the company's CEO that a package of measures to be proposed this week 
strike will mandate that workers on ferries calling on UK ports be paid the country's minimum wage. JP Morgan Chase's fledgling digital bank is going after more customers in the UK with a new savings account. Chase, which launched in the UK last September, says it will offer a variable interest rate of 1.5%. That is more than double the rate that's offered by similar online banks, including Goldman Sachs Group's Marcus. Deposits will be capped at £250,000 and no fees or charges will apply to move money out. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. So, Joe Biden, the President of the United States, shocking enemies and allies alike over the weekend with his call for regime change in Russia. He called for the ousting uh, of Vladimir Putin. Since then, we have seen his team trying to row that, those comments back and allies certainly here in Europe distancing themselves from the comments. How much damage was done is this, in, flat, in fact, a reality check uh, for actually what the White House would like to see? Let's talk about this and what else is happening in Ukraine. We're joined now by Ros Matheson, executive editor for International Government uh, here at Bloomberg. Ros, in terms of what was signaled by the Biden administration, by those comments, do they reflect any underlying reality of the way do you think that the White House is thinking about Russia right now. We have a sanctions policy that would seem to imply that even if the war ended right now, sanctions would remain in place even and well until we see Vladimir Putin departing. Well, he did some significant damage potentially to to the to the to the war effort simply because what he's done is really fed the narrative inside Russia, the sort of conspiracy theories that go around in Russia about containment um, by the West from the US and NATO and others. And that, you know, they just can use his words really to speak for themselves. That's why Russia's been pretty quiet in response in a way. They're just letting his comments percolate uh, through Russia. Um, but they certainly suit a narrative inside Russia about the way the world seems to see it right now. And that's useful potentially for Vladimir Putin continuing in his war in Ukraine at the moment. You know, Ross, I'm wondering if you could help me understand the narrative on the ground in Russia. You know, we only hear one side of the story here in the U.S. Obviously, most of the data is fed to us, um, you know, from Ukraine, from that point of view. You know, I'm curious, you know, what do Russians really think about the war? And by extension of that, there are other, you know, kind of Soviet satellites like Kazakhstan. You know, I mean, some people even point to Serbia, you know, that are kind of pushing back. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on all that. It's very difficult to say because a lot of the independent media is either shutting down or being shut down inside Russia, and a lot of social media is curtailed, so people are struggling to access information um, unless they can, can, of course, use a VPN to do so. So some of the messaging um, on television, on social media, and everywhere is really alongside the Russian narrative, which is that the, the operation in Ukraine was necessary because Ukraine was preparing chemical weapons or nuclear weapons. Those are sort of the allegations that are made, therefore justifying Russia's actions. So it's very difficult to say. Uh, equally, people in Russia are probably a little bit afraid to speak out publicly about this. Uh, many of them, of course, have family members or cultural ties or historical ties to Ukraine and may be feeling that. Whether they can speak out about that is another thing entirely. You're seeing some protests that have broken out in cities, but nothing sizable in the last couple of weeks. And certainly the police are very quickly uh, moving to put those down. So even if there is 
sort of that dissent that's simmering amongst ordinary Russian people, um, they're certainly not saying that very much publicly. Ros, we have talks that are starting tomorrow, maybe starting this evening uh, in Istanbul between the two sides. What should we expect from those talks? Well, certainly it's interesting that they're getting to the point that they're meeting face-to-face again because talks for a couple of weeks have been over video conferencing and perhaps getting in a room means that they're ready, getting closer to look at signing some bits of paper. The question is, what would be an interim deal that might be acceptable that could come together uh, in theory in in Turkey this week? Is it something that would just allow a short-term ceasefire, perhaps 48 hours, um, that gives some breathing space uh, for discussions for a broader deal? And that's where, because the, the big sticking points would be on what kind of outline that broader deal would take. If they can get the first step, which would just be to say, let's have a 48-hour ceasefire, let's see if that holds, if that allows space around cities like Mariupol to allow um, more evacuations of people, those humanitarian corridors to actually work properly, is that sort of a goodwill gesture that then allows uh, further conversations to take place? Because the broader thing of a deal uh, still has a lot of differences between both Ukraine and Russia about what they would accept. So perhaps we could see movement towards that initial ceasefire. That would just be the first step in a very long process. Ros, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for the update. Greatly appreciated. Ros Matheson, Executive Editor for International Government here at Bloomberg. Damien, I, keep, I, I come back to this weekend and I'm really struggling because I think it's something that the market needs to pay attention to. Biden may have misspoken. He may have talked about, talked about this idea that he wants regime change. But you look at the structure of the sanctions that are being put in place and you, talk, and you, and you listen to what people in D.C. are saying. And there does seem to be this this implicit idea that sanctions are going to remain in place regardless of the outcome of what happens on the ground uh, in in Ukraine until Vladimir Putin goes. And therefore, you could assume that actually policy is implicitly or maybe explicitly aimed at regime change in Russia. I think that's really quite significant because that might give us an idea of how long these sanctions are likely to remain in place and the impact across all kinds of, uh, of um, goods and services uh, and how long they are going to be felt for as well. Yeah, no, I mean, and it slips directly into my wheelhouse when you talk about whether or not the U.S. Treasury is actually going to force uh, Russian companies and the government itself into default, right? I mean, look, if it yeah. really wants to do damage, if it really wants to you know, create a run on the ruble, you know, that's what it's going to try and do. It's going to try and plunge these, you know, plunge the country into default. And basically that will get creditors running around trying to seize assets offshore. It's going to create a whole you know mess. But I think really, let's be clear and take a step back. In order for the sanctions to work, guy, China needs to get on board with this, right? And we're having enough trouble with countries like India, yeah. which is supposed to be one of the quad. I mean, that's the real missing link here. For these sanctions to really have an impact, China needs to be involved. And So, on the- so do you not think they're having an impact now? Uh, I, well, no, what we're seeing here, actually, interestingly enough, if you look at uh, local swap market activity in Russia, which is really an indication of local deposits being withdrawn from the Russian banking system, that's starting to subside, right? I mean, we're seeing, you know, uh, domestic Russian banks not tapping the, the repo market the way they were initially. And so, you know, things are, I guess, improving. And, you know, money's beginning to change hands locally again. And, uh, right. yeah, that means that, the, that, that, quite frankly, the sanctions aren't having the impact we would otherwise expect. Let's talk about the duration of the sanctions, though. And this is, I guess, the point that I'm trying to make, is that 
I'm curious to get your take on on what the expectation is for how long they are going to remain in place for. Because you look at yeah. this, Carlsberg has announced today that it is going to be leaving the country, and and I understand why they're doing it from a from the perspective of reputational damage. But nevertheless, they're walking away from a significant asset here. But the implication of that is that this is going to be a long-term story, that this is not something that's going to be resolved quickly. And actually, as a result, they have to make not, a, not what is appearing to be a knee-jerk reaction, but actually a long-term rational decision that effectively Russia is, going to, Russia is going to be cut off for an extended period. Well, I mean, to reverse these sanctions, first of all, you know, a lot of the companies have, you know, left Russia of their own, you know, accord, right? So, you know, you have to yeah. convince them to come back in and of their own right, right, of their own volition. But really, it takes time once you've put a sanction up to really just, you know, let, I mean, look at Rusal, you know, look at, um, you know, what happened, uh, you know, with Oleg Deripaska, yeah, Deripaska a few years back, you know, it took a while for them to come back online. And you, you could expect much the same thing to occur this time around. But the implicate people are talking about the fact that the that the sanctions need to be given time to work. What you're saying is that actually time may work against the sanctions rather than the other way around because my the what I what the way I came at this conversation was sanctions are going to be here for a long time they will gradually get therefore more difficult to live with or will certainly do more damage over time. What you're saying is Actually, the longer they on, the longer they go on. People are figuring out how to get around them. Yep, absolutely. No, I mean, the, yeah, markets are very innovative, uh, innovative yeah. you know, and there are ways to innovative. avoid sanctions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know you're going to see a lot of that. Um, and that's why, and quite frankly, I've said this repeatedly. You know, it's about China. You know, they are absolutely critical. Yeah. And whether or not they're afraid of the U.S. and the Western sanctions and how that's going to affect their own economy, that's the real key here. So again, the implication is that that if people are getting around it, and China's helping well being part of that process then the chinese aren't that worried about it um well that's difficult to tell i mean you know i think you know um if i had to be you know completely honest i think that you know China can't afford to be anything but, you know, right down the middle, but it's going to tell its biggest companies and banks, hey, you got to be very careful. You know, if these Western sanctions start to bite on you, i.e. on the Chinese economy, we're going to have some real problems. So I think they're going to, you know, I guess probably caution them to, to adhere to the sanctions, um, you know, unless, you know, maybe, you know, you know, behind closed doors guy, that's what I'm thinking is probably going to happen. Yeah. But but China is, is it's really, I so mm-hmm. difficult for China to figure out the line that they've got to walk here and and ultimately how they avoid the sanctions yet at the same time retain some some or maintain face as a result of 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 the kind of shoulder to shoulder political decisions that have been made. Damien, we've got much more to talk about. We should talk about food next. So earlier, uh, Kayla Lines and I caught up with Joseph Glauber from the International uh, Food Policy Research Institute. Like a fairly bleak picture being painted by him, certainly of the uh, the upcoming story in, in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. We'll talk about food next. Fertilizer is a big part of this story as well. Our yield's going to come down broadly around the world. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 18 minutes past the hour. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. Uh, Let's talk about what is happening with food prices. Wheat prices actually down today, down by 4.39%. This as talks 
are set to resume face-to-face between Ukrainian officials and Russian officials about some sort of possible ceasefire uh, in the conflict that is ravaging that country. There is hope that actually these talks may deliver progress, hence wheat prices falling today. But they are up by, and this is a year-to-date number, um, 32%, nearly 33% year to date. The fear is obviously that this is going to have a significant impact around the world, in particular in sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa. Joe Glauber is a former chief economist at the US Department of Agriculture. He's now with the International Food Policy Research Institute. Kayleigh Lyons and I caught up with him a little bit earlier to get his take on how bad this could become. I think you've got to remember that the, this war is coming on at a time when the world supplies were already tight. So uh, global stocks for wheat, uh, maize, other other crops were at pretty low levels and prices were at the highest levels in several years. This, uh, you know, this war exacerbates that considerably and particularly for wheat, which is very important, particularly for the diets of, of people in North Africa and in the Middle East, where they consume wheat at a rate probably twice that of here in the U.S. So they are looking for new supplies. I, I think Shortage is probably the wrong word. I think what what they will see, however, is very, very high prices because in seeking wheat, there's just not a lot of wheat in the world. Uh, There will be enough to feed people, but again, it will be at a very high price. So it's not just about being able to access the food. It's about being able to afford it. What is the appropriate policy response then? Well, I think uh, what what you will see in a lot of the countries in North Africa is that the the governments will step in for those co- uh, countries that can afford it will uh, subsidize bread and other things for their for their uh, poor households in countries like Yemen which uh, import almost 100 percent of their wheat needs and have very very little reserves have their own civil war to to attend with. Uh, they will be very much in need of humanitarian aid, and that humanitarian aid has gotten a lot more expensive now. Uh, I think the main thing governments can do is do no harm, don't put on export restrictions, don't do the sorts of things that we've seen in the past. That was Joe Glauber, International Food Policy Research Institute Senior Research Fellow and former Chief Economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Damien, when you look at this through your lens, how do you see this working out? It was interesting, Joe was talking about countries that have the capacity to do something about this financially. They are going to obviously have to take action to feed their people, but that's going to mean that they're not spending money elsewhere. How do you see this working its way through the system? Well, Guy, I think a lot of the focus initially has been on the main consumers, you know, um, to Turkey um, and Egypt, quite frankly, you know, and as we know, I mean, that that you know, reminiscence of the Arab Spring, right, which was caused by rising, full price, uh, rising food prices, right? Um, and so we actually saw Egypt just last week, I believe, turn to the IMF for assistance. So that's one avenue that you might see some of these countries take. But I think what we're really going to see is pressure on countries like Australia and India, you know, these are countries that are wheat producers that can offset, you know, a a significant portion of the loss from Ukraine and Russia, certainly not all of it. But, you know, we're going to be looking for them to up up the ante a bit here and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, fill that slot that's going to be missing. But food prices generally are going to go higher. Uh, You look at what is happening. So agriculture relies on fertilizer. Belarus is a massive provider of fertilizer. Russia is a massive provider of fertilizer. Nat gas is... A lot of that yeah. gas is used for fertilizer. I, we, we've seen that here in the UK. Fertilizer plants having to shut down because NAT gas prices are so high. 
I, I don't think we've even seen fully the impact of this being felt yet because yields are going to come down. Fertilizer prices are massively expensive. That probably doesn't impact where you are in, in <laughs> North America or where I am in Europe, but it's going to have a big impact elsewhere. Well, look, I mean, here, here's the, here, here are the stats, right? I mean, higher wheat prices are estimated to cost Egypt roughly $2.6 billion or 0.6% of GDP this year. Okay, so that's Egypt and Turkey. But to your point, out along the frontier, countries like Yemen, I mean, it's going to cost 3.6% of Yemen's GDP, right? That's only a step away from famine, you know? So I do believe you're absolutely right. The risk of seeing, you know, a pro- this, uh, you know, a prolonged disruption that causes poverty and famine worldwide, especially out on the frontier in these less developed economies, is a very real possibility. And then you get the ripple effects of people basically having to move. You get huge migrations off the back of that, which then have have a knock-on effect as well. In terms of the IMF resources, in terms of the IMF's ability to help, in terms of the World Bank's ability to step in, how much capacity is there? If this is if this is significant and wide wide ranging, and I guess the crisis is is kind of not just limited to North Africa and and maybe Sub-Saharan. If it's a global phenomenon, how much capacity is there? Well, I think it depends on each country, right? I mean, it certainly depends on, you know, the the fiscal situation of each country, right? How they weathered the storm during the pandemic, you know, how much money they spent and blew through in terms of IMF funding and, you know, them coming back, you know, a year or less than two years later, it just might not be met with, you know, much support. You know, look, I mean, I think the USDA estimates that the world has enough wheat from prior harvest to cover, you know, roughly a third of annual consumption, guys. So, you know, like, you know, I'm not saying that that's a lot. It's certainly, you know, a far cry from where we were. But, you you know, it, all this doesn't happen overnight, and I don't think necessarily a lot of these countries are going to, you know, it, it, it's not going to be overnight that, you know, people are going to be flung into poverty and famine. But yes, you know, something's going to need to be done. There's going to need to be a strategy. If this is indeed a prolonged disruption to wheat stocks globally, you know, the U.S. is going to have to up their game. You know, they're capable of producing more. I mean, you know, yeah, it's it's going to be, it's going to take a unified kind of uh, approach to kind of uh, stemming the offset. In terms of I, how big a shift have you seen? You talk to a lot of people who invest in emerging markets. How much chaos is this war causing in terms of the way that they they are now thinking about those markets? How big a shift have we seen? Well, what you're seeing, I think, is is so countries like Hungary or Argentina, you know, Serbia, Egypt, they've all imposed limits on 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 food exports, right? So they're doing everything they can, you know, within reason to kind of keep the economy moving and to keep people, um, you know, just to keep economic output moving along and to keep inflation from rising. And look, we have seen emerging markets well ahead of the curve relative to their developed market counterparts in terms of raising rates. And I think we're getting to a point. If you look at Brazil, a great example. You know, their yield curve is now inverted. And that points to, you know, the stagflationary impact at the back end, that it's choking off growth over the long term. And that's the trade-off. Fabian's going to stick with us. Up next, uh, we're going to figure out what's happening at Barclays. I'm struggling to understand this one. We'll try and get some clarity from Shanali Basak next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Damien Sassau this evening. Um, let's give you a quick market check, then it gets him huddle at some headlines. Um, US safety markets beginning to fade. Uh, the S&P's now down by four tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq down by three tenths of one percent. The FTSE was actually negative as well coming into the close. So we've seen oil prices coming down today. So oil stocks are down. The miners are also tracking a little bit lower. Uh, and then there's the issue of Barclays. Barclays adding 
significant weight to the downside for the FTSE, and that could continue tomorrow. Uh, we'll get more details in just a moment from Shanali Basak, Bloomberg's Wall Street correspondent. Uh, but before we get to Shanali, let's get some headlines. Here's Charlie Peller. Thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Stocks remain sensitive to headlines on the war in Ukraine, dipping here in the U.S. after a report several peace negotiators suffered symptoms of suspected poisoning after a meeting in Kyiv earlier this month. Russia's siege of Mariupol has killed almost 5,000 people, including 200 children as of Sunday. That, according to the city's mayor, and roughly a third of the pre-war population remains in the city. Ukrainian and Russian negotiating teams plan to meet in Turkey tomorrow, with big differences remaining on terms for a potential ceasefire deal after more than a month of fighting. Carlsberg, the largest brewer in Russia, and rival Heineken plan to sell their local businesses and exit the country as brewers pull back after the invasion of Ukraine. The Dutch brewer says it does not expect any profit from the sale. Brewers are the latest industry to abandon Russia following in the footsteps of oil companies and cigarette makers. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. So two stories weighing on Barclays, Charlie. The stock down fairly hard into the London close and it's taking a hit stateside. So the first story is that Barclays is expecting to take a £450 million hit. It's going to delay its share buyback this after mistakenly issuing around $15 billion worth of structured notes that it shouldn't have done, basically, and exchange-traded notes. Uh, it had registered for, for to sell some of these. Uh, it issued around $36 billion of these investment products but only registered in August 19 with U.S. regulators to sell around 20. So basically, they were well ahead of where they should have been. The other story this evening that seems to be capturing attention is that a top Barclays shareholder, we think probably in the States, but we don't know that, is set to sell around $1.1 billion worth of stock. This is a block sale, um, and that is likely to hit, we think, uh, Barclays first thing tomorrow morning. Bloomberg's Shanali Basak joining us now, Bloomberg's uh, Wall Street correspondent. Shanali, just talk us through the latter story, this block sale that we're seeing. Do we know who this is? So we don't yet know who it is, but we know that these block trades are starting to emerge in the market now, that there is some sense of stability in the market and, uh, you know, a selling price at which to sell at. Something interesting about this block trade uh, in particular is we know that Qatar has made other block trades before. At the end of the day, if it's the Qatar Investment Authority, it will be an interesting move. It would be among a couple of other major sales that they've made. But to the point that I think you're trying to get at also is when there's a big block of shares sold in a bank already on a down day, it's typically momentum on the downside for a big firm stock, certainly a big bank. So, Sonali, I wonder if you could just help me understand this whole mess. You know, what, what the difference between ETNs and ETFs and, you know, the counterparty risk associated with the former and how that's kind of feeding into this, you know, $500 million blender by Barclays. Yeah, this is a pretty amazing and bizarre story, mostly because, uh, you know, the new CEO of Barclays, CSN Venkatakrishnan, was previously a risk officer uh, at the bank, and especially at the time of some of these notes really taking off and, and being issued here. But these notes are typically levered. And it's interesting, Damien, Guy, I went back because 
Wall Street kind of has a long history of uh, hitting into problems with exchange-traded notes. They could be very profitable because they do use leverage. Um, they're very popularly traded products, especially VXX, which is a VIX short-term futures product, and um, an oil ETN literally under the tickle, ticker OIL. But what's very rare about these notes is even if they have kind of volatility-driven hiccups, which is what we've seen at other banks like Credit Suisse before, what you don't see is a bank issuing too much of the product uh, which is yep. what happened in Barclays' case here. Normally, you issue more shares to keep the the price stable, but that's not really what happened in the case here at Barclays. So, so this goes back to this argument, Shinoli, which I think a lot of people will make around this: that these banks are too complicated, <laughs> that that they don't know one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing, and as a result of which, from a regulatory point of view, it's really hard to keep a grip on what is happening here. From a risk point of view, it's really hard to keep a, a, a handle on what is happening. Yeah, I think that that's made, been made pretty clear, not just through this Barclays story on Wall Street, but also between these major, major blowups we've seen, Arkegos being the prime example. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, you look at Credit Suisse, you look at Barclays, these are banks that had massive, massive trading divisions that, by the way, when, when markets were calm, where, when the VIX was low, you didn't see these hiccups happen at this great of a rate. And so now, again, normally you would see these kinds of hiccups only being volatility driven. This was due because of risk issues. And, you know, not normally do you see a bank over issuing shares uh, based on notes that they're selling. So there's going to be more questions, especially because the other thing that's very rare about this is you're seeing Barclays having to suspend their share buyback um, for a couple more months because of this. So this is actually even way further than, you know, just one division of the bank. It's, it's impacting already the ability of the bank to return money to shareholders at large, which is pretty incredible. You know, Sonali, I mean, look, I mean, the one thing we know about investment banks and investors, more generally speaking, is yes, these things happen, but they also have short-term memory loss, right? So my question for you is these exchange-traded notes, you know, they have this 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 history of blowing up in these kind of times when we see volatility spiking. I mean, I mean, is this does this kind of is this the death knell for the ETN as a structure, or I mean, are once again investment banks going to have short-term memory loss and we're going to look forward ten years from now and these are going to be everywhere? It's hard to say that they're a death now because these funds have raised the billions and billions and billions of dollars, right? The ship has kind of like left the station here. Uh, they're not going away just because Barclays lost a couple hundreds of millions of dollars here or, you know, issued a couple billion dollars more than they should have. The question is, what does it mean for Barclays' a specific business overall? Because it's, it's not going to be like banks just shut down their divisions that, that trade these things. But to your point, yes, memories are short. And, uh, you know, the, the specific example I went back to is when this kind of happened to Credit Suisse a couple of years ago. They had to uh, actually redeem, um, you know, shares from a fund. They, they, they lost money, yes, but it didn't kind of break the bank, if you will. People, people did kind of forget about what had happened there a couple of years ago. So, you know, even with Barclays itself, it's a huge trading house in Europe. It's, you know, really the behemoth there. And well, there's a lot yeah. of reasons why people want them to succeed in the trading business overall. But you bring up Credit Suisse. Archegos Credit Suisse is now out of a lot of those businesses. Investors, so having an investment bank is great when when trading is good, but it's also a massive risk. It causes huge volatility. How are investors going to view this? This is another reason not to own a big bank with a big trading arm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, especially as trading becomes more automated as well. And so who's there minding the bank? It reminds me of Deutsche Bank also. They have the yep. most brilliant quants in the industry, and they all ended up going to quantitative hedge funds for the most part. But, you know, trading is still a lucrative business. A lot of banks this quarter will make a lot of money off their commodities business in particular. So there's not an incentive to get out, but there is certainly a high, uh, you know, reason to get a handle on risk here. Shinali, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg Shinali Basak. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. So it continues in China, this, in China. this time it's Shanghai that is being locked down. Shanghai is now in a two-phase lockdown that will likely deal a heavy blow to businesses in the city reliant on consumer spending. Economists, though, saying that the industrial sector in the city probably can withstand the disruption. But nevertheless, it poses an ongoing question, which is city by city, China is going through a series of lockdowns. What is the plan here for returning to normality? Well, let's bring in Bloomberg Intelligence's Sam Fazelli to get a take on this. Sam, I'm really struggling with how China figures out the exit route. It is it is locking down major city after major city. We're all watching this with our mouths open because we're trying to understand what the exit route looks like and we're trying to understand what the implications are for the global economy. How do you see it? Yeah, I mean, Guy, if you think about it, how do we stop this virus from going from me to you? <clears throat> yeah. Right? You exactly. We'll be exactly. Either I wear a mask all the time, absolutely keeping it out of every place, yep. or we don't share each other's air. And frankly, with Omicron, BA2 even worse, people are becoming infectious so quickly after having been infected, uh, regeneration time is called, um, that you end up, uh, generation time, sorry, that you end up, the only way you can do it to keep it at zero is to do what they're doing is mass test everybody, make sure there's no transmission between them. And then, of course, you've got this issue of, well, is it a risk that it passes back from animals to, to humans? I mean, that was how it first started, right? Yeah. And, the, and then asymptomatics. So this is the way that China can manage it, but it would have to be doing this all the time to, to manage because I just don't see how else they'll do it. And vaccines, the best they can do is to reduce, which is important, severe disease. They won't stop the infections. So, Sam, that's right. I mean, Omicron doesn't care if you're vaccinated, right? So my question for you is, look, I mean, we eventually, I would think China will shift its focus from, you know, the number of cases and will start focusing on the efficacy of the vaccines. And from that perspective, I'm curious, you know, what is their uh, intention to, to kind of expand from Sinovac into, you know, other vaccinations, you know, Moderna, you know, um, Pfizer, you know, ones that have a, you know, a generally uh, a higher vaccination rate and a higher efficacy rate? Yeah, so you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. You know, at the end of the day, it's the efficacy against severe disease. We do know that for the mRNA vaccines, well studied in Israel, in the UK, in Qatar, lots of data flows out. CDC in the US gives us those numbers. So we know how that works. And we also know that if you get a shot of an mRNA vaccine from Pfizer-BioNTech or Moderna, on the background of having had two shots of CoronaVac, for instance, uh, in China, you get really good immune response. How good is that in terms of preventing severe disease? Hopefully really good. But 
all this has to be studied, and I've never seen any data that gives me the answer. Um, but the, the problem is that I don't think China today cares about this. About, of course they care, but I think what they want to keep doing is keeping infections down, and that is going to be very tough. Okay, Damien, let's get, let's get your perspective on this. If they keep doing this, what is the economic impact? What's the economic impact of shutting down Shanghai? <laughs> well, we're going to find out on Thursday, right, when China P- PMI probably slips back into contractionary territory, Guy. I mean, the lockdown in Shenzhen uh, is more than going to offset probably the seasonal boost we saw from the Lunar New Year, right? So, yes, you know, Shanghai in this case is China's financial hub, and they're home to the largest stock, currency, futures exchanges, all that good stuff. So, Guy, you know, what's interesting is if you look at volumes overnight, they were down 20%. So, you know, you're seeing less yep. liquidity in the market, right? And you're seeing probably greater volatility off the back of that. So, yeah, I mean, one, one you know, data point that catches my eye, I mean, on the back of all this, is China-U.S. three-year yield differentials slipped into negative territory for the first time since 2009. That means the yield on China three years is actually now less than that of the U.S. Go figure. That's amazing. I hear people are basically camping out. They're taking sleeping bags to the trading floors so they can keep going. Um, Sam, just very briefly in 30 seconds, U.K. numbers, European numbers, they're climbing again. Should we worry? Yeah, uh, look, at the moment, it seems like we're managing the severity of the disease. The UK is doing what we just talked about. Yep. It's managing, it's, uh, and so does France, and I think most of Europe's going to think like that. Are we dealing with severe disease? We can manage the hospitalizations. We're fine. That's what they're thinking. Okay. Sam Fazelli, always appreciate it. Thanks very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Tesla up and up strongly today, but there's a couple of conflicting stories uh, that are worth paying attention to. Before the break, we were talking to Sam Fazelli about the lockdown that is taking place in Shanghai. Tesla has been forced to suspend production of vehicles in Shanghai. This is a huge production facility for Tesla. Now, normally you would have expected the stock to take a significant hit on the back of that. But Tesla today is on pace to add around $85 billion worth of market value. Just to put that in context, that is more than Ford's total market capitalization in one day. This basically after the electric vehicle maker said it's planning a second stock split in about two years. Stock splits, in theory, should be neutral. They shouldn't have any impact. Damien, does this make sense to you? Well, it does when you're talking about a stock that's only one of four in the S&P with a four-digit share price, right? So you want to make it a little bit more affordable for your retail investors out there. But look, in August 2020, you're absolutely right. The stock split five for one. And Tesla stock ripped 80% off the back of that go figure. So I'm not saying it was all due to the fact, obviously, the beta regime and the fact that U.S. equities, more broadly speaking, did well. But yeah, I mean, my goodness, I mean, even Dan Ives at Wedbush thinks this is a smart move. Uh, The timing is interesting. Let's bring in our West Coast correspondent, Ed Ludlow, to the conversation. Ed, we shut down Shanghai and there's talk of a stock split, both on the same day. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting timing. You know, it's a little bit like reading the tea leaves, but... What was interesting about not the tweet that Tesla put out, because, you know, you you come to expect communication from Tesla as a company in that kind of medium. But the 8K filing kind of pointed out that more details will come around the annual shareholders meeting. We don't have a date for the annual shareholders meeting, right? We don't know whether this is a five for one split or a three for one split. You know, uh, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, recently did a 21 
for one split, but their their share price was much more elevated. So the timing is interesting, and you know, Tesla is such a heavily discussed stock on Twitter, both by fans of Tesla and also you know skeptics, those that would would claim to short the stock, and they very quickly pointed to the idea that it followed the news out of what's happening in Shanghai. You know, I'm wondering what does this mean for Tesla margins, right? Obviously, Shanghai has significant capacity. You know, what what yeah. you know, with with that factory going offline, what what can we expect? Yeah, it's really interesting dynamic. So Shanghai accounts for just under fifty percent of installed capacity, and by that I mean the, the number of vehicles that Tesla can build in a calendar year on paper. And of course, you know Austin and Berlin are coming online right now, new factories, but we don't know how many they'll build. But beyond that. Elon Musk has talked a lot, and so has Zachary Kirkhorn, the CFO, about the localization of the supply chain in China. It's not just vehicles destined for that domestic market, but export vehicles as well that are much higher margin. And they often talk about how when they've had a good quarter, it's because the mix of vehicles produced was skewed towards Shanghai on the Model Y in particular. The margins are just higher there. The cost of doing business is lower. The technology in the plant is more advanced. So you're completely right. We look at this disruption. Right now, it's a four-day stretch, according to sources, through April 1st. But if it's extended, you would then consider what the impact will be for first quarter, second quarter earnings. Is this something that, as you say, we've got new plants coming on stream. Yeah. Is this something that Tesla has effectively already dealt with? It is bringing new plants online. There is clearly going to be disruption in China. But as these new plants come online, that that stress is going to reduce. Was it always anticipated that this would be, as you say, a multipolar world for Tesla? And and in terms of the investments we can expect going forward, are they going to be skewed away from, from China as we continue to see the zero COVID policy being in place? I think that's a good question because it's something that Elon Musk has talked about in a pretty matter-of-fact way. He's always said that he's a common-sense, logic kind of guy, and he wants the companies, not just Tesla but SpaceX as well, to operate, literally operate in ways that are logical. And for him, why would you build vehicles in America and then ship them to China or Europe? And he really wants to basically have a system where manufacturing is in a market where those vehicles end up being delivered. So for Europe, this is really big step, right? Electrification in Europe is well ahead of what it is in the United States, for example. But until this point, you've been shipping vehicles from Fremont or China to those mainland European, European Union or UK markets. So for him, it's just about localizing production. That said, you know, China is, I love your polarization question, Guy, very quickly, because China's a much more saturated market. There are many players with many EV models. And Shanghai has been a great success for them, but they don't sort of completely dominate. And I think here in the West, and, and, and as we talk about the stock, we don't really talk enough about how many other players there are in that Chinese market. You know, let's talk about the stock. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I mean, I think Elon Musk has COVID nineteen also, right? Well, so is right. the stock stock trading. Supposedly, trade. he tweeted. Supposedly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the share price may may have uh, gotten hit off the back of that. So is is some of today's price action a little bit of a bounce from that, or is this entirely due to the fact that we expect this stock split to uh, to drive performance going forward? Yeah, it's very hard to say, especially now that, you know, on some of the third party retail investor facing apps, we have less tracking data. I'm talking about Robinhood, basically, where we don't have sort of as clear a read on what the top stocks of the day are. But it does seem like a lot of retail investors are cheering the stock split news. It's interesting to your question because, uh, and, you know, as you know, Elon Musk has some issues with the SEC on this point. A lot of investors, 
follow his every single word. They invest in the confidence of him as a leader and as an executive and his ability to to get the company to grow. But I would say Elon Musk has tweeted a lot about COVID over the last two years. He's been a kind of noted COVID skeptic. And, and you know, if you're, a, if you're on Wall Street or you're just at home on your app as a retail investor, I'm not sure him kind of downplaying the virus is something that drives your, your investment thesis. A lot of people who buy the cars seem to be believers more broadly. I'd love to know what the overlap is between car ownership point. and share ownership. Yeah. I imagine my, my, it's pretty high. It's really high. You know, it's hard to quantify, but, but based on, you know, search data on, tw- on Twitter comments, my colleague Dana Hall's fantastic reporting, Elon Musk has been very straightforward that he thinks that Tesla owners, people that own the vehicles, the energy products, solar battery, understand the company better than Wall Street does. And what's so fascinating is there's loads of examples out there of people that got rich through the stock or gains in the stocks they held early and then used it to buy more Tesla products. It's an interesting (laughs) dynamic. Ed, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. Um, That wraps things up from Damien and from me. I hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 